Good evening. It's my pleasure to be here at the Southwest ASI Convention. Thank you, Pat, for that introduction. You did forget to mention that I walk on water. <laughs> you know, when I preach, I'm very serious. So people think that I never laugh. But I do. I like a good joke. You know, my dad um, actually retired and he went to stay at Summit Ridge, which is a retirement center in Oklahoma. And I would go and visit him now and then. And uh, one time, uh, the first time actually that I went, he would always ask me to preach on Wednesday night. And so, uh, the elder, the head elder there, introduced me, and as he was introducing me, I asked my father, I said, what's his name? Because I want to thank him for introducing me. He said, his name is Brother Lawless. Said, okay. So when I got up, I looked at him in the eye and I said, you know, you have a terrible name for an Adventist. Well, I preached my sermon. At the end of the sermon, he looked at me and he said, you have a terrible name for a preacher. <laughs> and that is a true story. <laughs> anyway, now let's get serious. I love the theme that has been chosen. Here am I, send me. And on Sabbath morning, I will be sharing a message based on Isaiah 6, which is the very theme. But tonight we're also going to talk about the need to reach out. But before we begin, we want to have a word of prayer. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, as we open your holy book, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be present in our midst to open our understanding, to open our hearts, and to inspire us to fulfill the commission that you have given to us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being your children. And we just ask that you will help us to share your wonderful message in various ways with those who are seeking for truth. We thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. 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 By the way, I had the privilege of meeting uh, Pat at the Heartland Camp Meeting. And there's where she asked me to preach. And uh, unfortunately, I wrote the wrong date on my calendar. And so this week, uh, I've been at the um, White Rock Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church east of Dallas, and um, I'm teaching the anchor class, five hours of teaching every day, but we readjusted the schedule so that I could be here at ASI, because I felt that it's important to do both uh, responsibilities. So I appreciate, Pat, you working with us on this very difficult situation. As we begin our study this evening, 
I want to mention that when people think about the day of Pentecost, they usually think about what happened on earth. The mighty rushing wind. The tongues of fire. People speaking in other languages. But what they don't realize is that the important event on the day of Pentecost did not happen on earth. It happened in heaven. And what happened on earth was simply an announcement of a heavenly event. Another thing which many fail to realize is that there is an intimate connection between Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the fire that came from heaven on the day of Pentecost. So we want to take a look at the relationship between the cross and Pentecost. And we also want to take a look at what happened in heaven which was announced on earth on the day of Pentecost. You know, there's an interesting pattern that we find in the Old Testament. And that is that a sacrifice is placed on the altar and then God shows his acceptance of the sacrifice by raining fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. Sacrifice and fire. Let's notice several examples of this from the Old Testament. The first example is in Genesis chapter 4. The story of Cain and Abel. They both, both brought a sacrifice. Abel brought a victim and shed the blood of the victim. He also brought a grain offering. But Cain only brought a offering of the produce of the ground. And God showed his acceptance of Abel's offering by raining fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice. While Cain received no fire from heaven as a sign that God accepted his sacrifice. Now you might think, well, you know, but it doesn't say in the Bible the way in which God showed that he accepted Abel's sacrifice. It doesn't say that fire came from heaven and consumed his sacrifice. But we know, first of all, from the spirit of prophecy, and secondly, by all of the other examples in the Old Testament, that that's the way that God approved of the sacrifice. Notice this statement that we find in Signs of the Times, February 6, 1879. God had respect unto this sacrifice, Abel's sacrifice. And fire came down from heaven and consumed it. So God showed his acceptance of the sacrifice by Abel by sending fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. The second example of this is found in the story of when the tabernacle in the wilderness was inaugurated. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Leviticus chapter 9 and verses 22 to 24. Once again, several sacrifices are placed on the altar and then God rains fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. It says there in Leviticus 9, 22 through 24, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people and blessed them. 
and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting, and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Once again, sacrifice and fire as a sign that the sacrifice was accepted by the Lord. The third example is during the period of the Hebrew monarchy. You see, the Ark of the Covenant had been taken captive by the Philistines. And of course, the Ark of the Covenant started pouring out plagues on the Philistines, and they didn't want it. They passed it along from one city to another. Finally, I said to David, come and get it. And so David went to get it, and he put it on Ornan's threshing floor, and he offered a sacrifice. First Chronicles 21 verse 26 tells us what happened when David put the sacrifice on the altar on Ornan's threshing floor. It says there, And David built there an altar to the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord, and see, he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. The next example is when the temple built by Solomon was inaugurated. Did you notice that I didn't say Solomon's temple? It was really the Lord's temple. Amen. And Noah's ark was not Noah's ark, it was the Lord's ark. <laughs> you say, well, you're, being, you're nitpicking. Probably so. The inauguration of Solomon, the temple that Solomon built, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. Notice once again the same phenomenon. It says there, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Sacrifice, fire, as a sign that God accepted the sacrifice. The last example I want to give from the Old Testament you know very well, it's the days of Elijah. When Elijah placed the sacrifices on the altar, you know what happened. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 38 tells us, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So you have this phenomenon in the Old Testament, where a sacrifice is placed on the altar, and God shows His approval and acceptance of the sacrifice by consuming the sacrifice with fire. Sacrifice and then fire. But there's another symbolism that I want us to look at. Different symbols are used, but the same lesson is taught by the, this second group of symbols. Go with me to Exodus chapter 17 and verses 1 through 6. Exodus 17 verses 1 through 6. It's the same idea of sacrifice and then God showing His acceptance of the sacrifice. 
but the same symbols are not used. Exodus 17, 1 through 6, is describing Israel in the wilderness. And they have no water. And so they're going to start murmuring and complaining, which is what they usually did. Let's read beginning at verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us, that, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Were they sinning against the Lord? Yes or no? Is murmuring against God a sin? Yes it was. Did they deserve to be punished? They most certainly did. Verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And now notice what God tells Moses to do. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. I want you to visualize this. The rock is there. And the Lord is standing on the rock. Now who led Israel through the wilderness? It was God, yes. But specifically who? Christ. We're going to see it in a few moments. So there you have the rock. And you have Christ on the rock. You have the symbol and the reality together. So it says, also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Strike the rock with the rod and the rock will give its water. Now, there are three main symbols in this story. And if we can understand the symbols, we can understand what God wanted to teach. The symbols are the rock, the rod, and the water that comes forth from the rock. What does the rock represent? Listen, folks, Israel itself should have understood that the rock was symbolic. They should have understood that. You say, why? Notice Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. In this chapter, nine times the Lord identifies himself as the rock. So they should have known what the rock represented. Notice Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. The rock is a he. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, 
a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. In the same chapter, it says, the rock of the pagans is not like our rock. So the rock symbolizes a person. It symbolizes God. More specifically, it symbolizes Christ. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 so that we have absolutely clear in our minds that the rock represents Christ. Here the Apostle Paul is reviewing some events in the history of Israel. And he is going to say and tell us what the rock represents. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. Why did God give manna? Let me just stop there for a moment. Why did God give manna? It wasn't primarily to feed Israel physically. Was the manna a complete food? Was it a complete protein? Did it have carbohydrates? Did it have vitamins? Did it have minerals? Yes, physically. But that's not the main reason why God gave them manna. He gave them manna that they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The manna represented the word, and the word is Christ. So notice what it continues saying. saying they all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Ah, so the water that came from the rock was not merely H2O. It was spiritual water. And then it continues saying, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the rock was Christ. So now we know what the rock represented. Now we need to interpret what the rod represents. Every time that Moses raised his rod and smote something, a judgment of God fell upon the Egyptians. By the way, the word smite there is the Hebrew word naka, which lexicons define as to strike, beat, smite, hit, slay, kill, to receive a blow, or to be wounded. Moses smote the waters of the Nile River and they became blood. Moses smote the dust and lice came out of the dust. He smote the, the, he smote the firstborn of Egypt and they died. And he used his, right, his rod to smite the Red Sea, and the Red Sea opened. So the rod represents God's judgment. And the act of smiting with the rock represents the fact that the rock is being beaten or smitten. And the rock represents whom? The rock represents Christ. Upon whom should that rock, that rod, have fallen? Not the rock, but Israel. They were the ones that were murmuring, murmuring. They were the ones that were complaining against God. If anything, the rod should have fallen on them. 
But behold, the rod smote the rock. And the one who was standing on the rock. Because you have the symbol, and he who is symbolized standing on the rock. By the way, that same word, smite or strike, is used in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, where it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him naka. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So the symbolism is that the rod of the Father's punishment fell upon Jesus. When it should have fallen upon us. Now what does the water represent? The rock is stricken. And the rock gives its water. We don't have to guess about what the water represents. Go with me to John chapter 7 and verses 37 to 39. John 7 verses 37 to 39. Here Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. Which is uh, the last feast of the Hebrew calendar. And it's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's called the Great Day. It's the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And notice what Jesus says there at the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and crying out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Where did the water come from? From the rock. So who does the water come from according to this? From Jesus. Now what does that mean? The water that comes from the rock. Jesus explained, He who believes in me, so to drink the water means to believe in Jesus. He who believes in me or has faith in me, as the scripture has said, now listen carefully, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of whose heart? The person who comes to Jesus and drinks. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, you drink the water that comes from the rock, and then you become a tributary of the water that came from the rock. Now what was this referring to? Pentecost. Notice verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Sacrifice, fire. Strike the rock, which is the sacrifice, water. Are you following? Different symbolism, the same lesson. Notice also 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 clearly identifies the water as the Holy Spirit. Why could Jesus pour out the Holy Spirit? Why could Jesus pour out the Holy Spirit? Did he have to be stricken first? Did he have to die first on the cross in order to be able to pour out the Holy Spirit? Yes. Just like the sacrifice had to come first 
And then the fire, symbolizing that God accepted the sacrifice. So the rock is stricken, and the way that God shows that he accepted the sacrifice is because on the day of Pentecost, the water comes from the rock. And people say that the Old Testament is not for Christians. They say, the old, well, you know, we're New Testament Christians. You can't understand the new without the old. Notice 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or fee, free, and have all been made to what? To drink into one Spirit. So the water represents the Holy Spirit that can be sent on the day of Pentecost because Jesus was stricken with the rod of his Father's punishment for sin. But we just noticed that when you drink the water, you become a fountain of water. Now let's pursue that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he also said, you are the light of the world. Now who is the light of the world then? Well, let me explain it by using the relationship between the sun and the moon. On a clear Texas evening, you go outside and you see this full moon. Romantic moon. And you look in the sky and you say, Oh, how beautiful the moon is tonight. That's only half truth. Where does the light of the moon come from? It comes from the sun. So you've got to say, how beautiful the sun is tonight. <laughs> As the moon reflects the light of the sun, so when we are in connection with the sun, we reflect the light of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, to others. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but when we have a connection with Jesus, the result is that we reflect His light. And the glory is not for us. The glory is for Him. Because if there was no sun, there would be no glory for the moon. But there's a second rock episode in the Old Testament. We need to take a look at that. Go with me to Numbers chapter 20 and verses 7 through 11. Numbers chapter 20 and verses 7 through 11. This is the second episode. There's a rod, there's a rock, and there's water. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather together the congregation. And now notice the difference. Speak to the rock. In other words, ask the rock for the water. Speak to the rock before their eyes. And it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and the animals. Moses lost it. Do you know you read Patriarchs and Prophets? No sin that Moses committed is recorded between when he left Egypt and this sin on the borders of the Promised Land. And Patriarchs and Prophets tells us that if Moses had not committed that one sin, he would have been translated to heaven from among the living. Verse 9. 
So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Why was the sin of Moses so serious? Why was he excluded from the promised land for striking the rock twice? We can only understand when we realize that the rock is a symbol of Christ and the striking of the rock with the rod represents the sacrifice of Christ. Moses was given the impression, symbolically, that Christ would have to die more than once. Notice what Ellen White wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 418. And by the way, there is a church in the world, the greatest, largest church in the world today, believes that Jesus is sacrificed in every Mass. If God excluded Moses from the promised land for doing that, how does he feel about a church that teaches that in every Mass, Christ is sacrificed anew? This quotation comes from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 418. By his rash act, Moses took away the force of the lesson that God purposed to teach. The rock, being a symbol of Christ, had been once smitten, as Christ was to be offered once. The second time, listen, the second time it was needful only to speak to the rock. As we have only to ask for blessings in the name of Jesus. By the second smiting of the rock, the significance of this beautiful figure of Christ was destroyed. Moses destroyed the symbolism. By the way, there's another verse that indicates clearly that all we need to do to ask for the Holy Spirit is to speak to Jesus. Luke chapter 11 and verse 13 says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Folks, the Holy Spirit is available. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. It's available. All we need to do is ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, what happens? We become tributaries to bring the same Spirit to other people as well. Now what was the mission of the disciples? Folks, the mission of the disciples was to take the good news to the world. That the rock had been stricken, And that the Holy Spirit was available, free of charge, to whoever asked for it. Listen folks, when we receive the Holy Spirit, it will be our passion to share it. Amen. Notice Acts chapter 1 and verses 7 through 8. Acts 1, 7 through 8. And I want you to notice that there's a word that is used twice. You shall. 
So in Acts 1, 7 and 8, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, he's speaking to his disciples, which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power. So in other words, the first you shall has to do with what you receive. That's drinking the water. But it continues saying, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. So what is the purpose of receiving the Holy Spirit? Witness. If we don't feel a desire to witness, we need to ask whether we have a connection with Christ. It's that simple. So he says, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what happened on Pentecost? You can, you can actually read this in the last three pages of Desire of Ages. Jesus is ascending to heaven. He's, he's already been smitten. He's already borne the sins of the world. And he's ascending to heaven. And the angels are singing Psalm 24. Open up ye gates. And the King of glory will come in. The angels are singing. They're joyful. Because Jesus is now going to go to heaven. To begin his intercessory ministry. To apply his life and death. To those who come to him in faith. And so he arrives in heaven. When he enters the gates. He raises his hands. And he says. And suddenly all of the heavenly hosts are quiet. And Ellen White describes he goes into the presence of his father. By the way, this is in Revelation 4 and 5. He presents himself as the lamb as though he had been slain to the one on the throne, which is his father. So he goes in before the father and he says to the father, Father, is it sufficient for, for what I have done? Is it sufficient to bring my people home? Yes or no? And the whole heavenly, heavenly hosts are watching in silence. And the Father says, it is sufficient. And they embrace Ellen White states. And then what does God do on the day of Pentecost to indicate that the sacrifice had been accepted? The tongues of fire on earth. Are you with me or not? So where did the important event take place? It took place in heaven. Not on earth. What happened on earth was the earthly announcement of the heavenly event. That Christ's sacrifice had been accepted by His Father. And the intercessory ministry of Jesus Christ was available for anyone who comes to faith in Jesus. What beautiful symbolism. When we drink the water... We need to become fountains of water. I was inspired by the testimonies this evening. You know, there's this passion not to just be professionals. Not to just have a business. But to use the business to witness. To bring people to Jesus Christ. To tell them, hey, the sanctuary is open to receive clients. (laughs) Because that's what Jesus is doing. He's receiving. He's applying the benefits that he won on earth to individuals who come to him. But what good is it if nobody knows about it? 
if nobody knows about what Jesus is doing in heaven. Now, usually I'm a long-winded preacher. But we're bringing this to an end now. Go with me to John chapter 4. And verses 13 and 14. John 4, 13 and 14. This is the story of the woman of Samaria. You know the story. Jesus at noon. By the way, people don't draw water out of the well at noon in Israel because it's hot. But this woman, she didn't want anybody to see her. So she goes at noon and Jesus is sitting there watching her. And he says, give me water to drink. And her, her, she progresses in her understanding of Jesus. She says, how is it that a Jew speaks to me? And then when Jesus tells her about her history, she says, well, I perceive that you're a prophet. And by the end, she says, I believe you're the Messiah. <laughs> Let's read John chapter 4 and verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water from Jacob's well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, what water is that? The water that we drink. The living water of the Holy Spirit. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Now notice, here's the key. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Amen. You drink and you become a tributary of the river. Amen. That's why Ellen White says that if we have no light to give, it's because we have no connection with the light. The greatest evidence that we love Jesus is that we want to see others know Him as well. But the story doesn't end there. The woman is pumped up. She goes back to Sikhar. And she goes from door to door and she says, I found the Messiah. I found the Messiah. I come, found the Messiah. The people say, what? You found the Messiah? Yeah. She says, Come. And meanwhile, Jesus is there. His, he sent his disciples to get some provisions, some food. And so they come back to Jesus. They say, we brought the food. Jesus says, my food and my drink is to do my Father's will and to finish his work. And the disciples say, well, maybe somebody brought him something to eat. <laughs> and then Jesus says, isn't it true that there are four months until the harvest? Look at the fields. They are white for the harvest. Jesus was not pointing to fields of wheat. He was pointing at the entire town of Sikar that was being brought by this woman to hear the words of the Messiah. She who drank the water became a source of water to others. And that's what this is all about. Here am I, send me. Amen. Isaiah didn't say, here am I, send him. <laughs> send the preacher. Send the Bible worker. Amen. No. 
And what did Isaiah say? I'm here. By the way, God says to him, not going to be easy. I'm not going to say much more because this is my sermon on Sabbath. And if I give you everything now, you won't come. <laughs> Are you following this? Let me read you what Ellen White, in closing, said in Ministry of Healing 102 and 103 about this woman. She proved herself a more effective missionary than his own disciples. The disciples saw nothing in Samaria to indicate that it was an encouraging field. Oh, they're just Samaritans. They're just homeless. To make a contemporary application. Their thoughts, now notice, isn't it true that as Adventists we say, you know, we're not winning very many people today, but when the latter rain falls, <laughs> the disciples said the same thing, notice. Their thoughts were fixed upon a great work to be done in the future. They did not see that right around them was a harvest to be gathered. But through the woman whom they despised, a whole city full were brought to hear Jesus. She carried the light at once to her countrymen. This woman represents the working of a practical faith in Christ. That's Ministry of Healing 102. And she continues writing, This woman represents the working of a practical faith in Christ. And then she says this, a very famous quote. Every true disciple is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. What? Every true disciple of Christ is born into the kingdom of God as a missionary. No sooner does he come to know the Savior than he desires to make others acquainted with him. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his heart. He who drinks of the living water becomes a fountain of life. The receiver becomes a giver. The grace of Christ in the soul is like a spring in the desert, welling up to refresh all, and making those who are ready to perish eager to drink of the water of life. In doing this work, a greater blessing is received than if we work merely to benefit ourselves. It is in working to spread the good news of salvation that we are brought near to the Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message from your word. I ask, Lord, that you will make us disciples of Jesus. That the water that we have received, that we drink, might become a fountain to bless others. Others who are searching for Christ, who are searching for a better life, who have a frustrating life, who have a life filled with tribulation, and they're looking for peace. Lord, help us to reach those people and proclaim the wonderful gospel message. We pray in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. 
www.audioverse.org.